It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Saturday, April 9th, 2022. I'm Jared Halper. A historic confirmation to the U.S. Supreme Court. On this vote, the A's are 53, the nays are 47, and this nomination is confirmed. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. What can the United Nations do to stop Russian aggression in Ukraine, if anything? Suspending the country from the Human Rights Council is one step, but the Russian Federation remains a permanent Security Council country with veto power. There really isn't going to be any U.N. Security Council backing of any measure of that unless there is a fundamental change in the U.N. Security Council. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. There was an honest-to-goodness Fox News alert this week on Capitol Hill, as in the animal, a fox, at least one, bit, nipped, and scratched several people around the Capitol complex, including Congressman Ami Barra, who described it in great detail, the Fox Business Network's Hillary Vaughn. I thought it was going to be a small dog. (laughs) Jumped. And it's it's like, that's not a dog, that's a fox. Glad I had my umbrella in my hand. So we're sitting there squaring off, holding... The, the fox back. The story actually ends sadly with the killing of that vixen and her kits after a positive rabies test. At any rate, it provided a midweek frenzy in an already frenzied week before lawmakers break for a two-week spring recess. There was, of course, the historic confirmation of Judge Katanji Brown Jackson to the U.S. Supreme Court, the 116th justice and first black woman confirmed to the high court. On this vote, the A's are 53, the nays are 47. And this nomination is confirmed. Vice President Kamala Harris presided over that Senate vote. And then there was the pandemic far from gone with several members of Congress, cabinet secretaries and senior White House officials announcing positive tests. All his new covid funding remains stalled in the Senate. So let's talk about it with not a Fox per se, but a Fox News congressional news hound, Chad Pergram. This was not quite as fast as the confirmation of uh, Amy Coney Barrett uh, less than two years ago because the Trump administration and Republicans in the Senate were trying to get that confirmation in uh, just before the the 2020 election. But it was pretty fast. And you had Dick Durbin, the chair of the Judiciary Committee, and, and Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, say that they wanted to move at the same rate. Uh, and there was some protestations from the Republicans, and they said, oh, no, no, you guys moved yours pretty fast. You can't sit back and say, oh, no, no, we, we, we need a little more time. So you're right. They did move this. It probably helped a lot that she had been confirmed you know, a couple of times before, including just last year, uh, to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals here in Washington, D.C., which is you know, considered by many to be the stepping stone to, to the Supreme Court, kind of the court that's immediately below uh, the Supreme Court. So that helped. And the fact that she had gotten uh, onto that court uh, on a bipartisan basis. Uh, you had a couple of senators, two of the three Republicans who voted for her last time, voted for her this time, Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins, a new Republican voted yes this time, who didn't vote for her last time. That's Mitt Romney of Utah. 
And of course, you had Lindsey Graham, uh, who voted for her last time, but didn't vote for her this time. You know, mm-hmm. and, and so each vote on Capitol Hill is always different. Uh, Lindsey Graham, uh, y- you know, said that he would have preferred someone who was a little more moderate than Jackson. Name Michelle Childs. Right. Michelle Childs from his home state. And he said that that's a nominee that probably would have gotten uh, 60 votes. But you didn't exactly see the Republicans when they nominated Amy Coney Barrett going around saying, oh, please give us somebody that we can, you know, help confirm. Katanji Brown Jackson, you know, got more uh, votes than uh, than Amy Coney Barrett did. Uh, that vote for well, Amy Coney Barrett go, was 5248. Right. That's where I wanted to go with this. Right. So Amy Coney Barrett, 5248. Brett Kavanaugh, 5048. Neil Gorsuch, 54. 54- uh, 5445. Now, I realized that there were some issues with each one of those. Democrats did not like that Gorsuch uh, got nominated after the, uh, the, the Republicans did not uh, take up a hearing for Garland. There were obviously the, the issues that came up with Brett Kavanaugh and obviously Amy Coney Barrett's uh, confirmation a couple of weeks before the election uh, sort of told a story. But you compare those, Chad, with Elena Kagan, 6337, Sonia Sotomayor, 6831. Samuel Alito, 5842. John Roberts, 7822. Stephen Breyer, 87 to 9. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, 96 to 3. David Souter, 90 to 9. Uh, Clarence Thomas, sort of the outlier in that 5248. But are, are we done with those kind of bipartisan votes on a Supreme Court nominee? At least right now. I mean, people here on Capitol Hill say that that process, the confirmation process uh, to the highest court in the land is really calcified. Uh, Both sides have been at this war really since the mid 80s. I mean, you look at Sandra Day O'Connor. She was confirmed 99 love, you know, back in 1981. Uh, But this really started to change. And, And frankly, there's a couple people you can point to. Number one, Ted Kennedy the late Democratic senator from Massachusetts, uh, who deliberately tried to bury and and successfully did Robert Bork, who is President Reagan's uh, nomination uh, for the Supreme Court, one of only 11 justices to lose on the floor. That happened in 1987. And then you had something, uh, you know, very similar happen with Clarence Thomas. Uh, You know, he you know, was confirmed 5248. Who was the chair of the Judiciary Committee (laughs) for two of the three most probably malevolent Supreme Court confirmation processes in history, the president of the United States, Joe Biden. The third one, of course, being Brett Kavanaugh. But, you know, Joe Biden was not in the in the. So when you look at obviously moving forward and now there's talk about, you know, if a vacancy were to pop up in the next two years and Republicans are in control of the Senate, do they just let that vacancy linger? Is that a real possibility or does it just sort of mean that Republicans are going to get an awful lot of say? in whoever might be nominated. Well, it depends. You know, it is only a 50-50 Senate. And so if you're able to muscle that through, great. This is why they really wanted to get through the confirmation of, uh, of uh, you know, Katanji Brown-Jackson here very quickly. You know, we're dealing with a COVID wave right That's now where I was going at, the, yeah. at the Capitol. And you don't have remote voting in the Senate. The majority leader, the minority leader, I should say, Mitch McConnell told, you know, Brett Baer, apparently that, you know, he doesn't think that they would ever go to remote voting in the Senate. They've had remote voting in the House of Representatives for more than two years now during the pandemic. So if you have people who are out, you know, you might not be able to move whatever it is. And it's a 50-50. And this could cut both ways for the Democrats and the Republicans. Well, but, you know, you talk about that. I mean, listen, like what, three hours, maybe less, two hours after the, the vote for 
the Supreme Court nominee, Ketanji Brown Jackson, you had uh, Senator Susan Collins, one of the three Republicans who supported the confirmation, announced that she tested positive for COVID that same afternoon. Um, mm-hmm. So if that vote happens later in the day, I guess that's one less vote for Jackson. Um, uh, we've had, I think, what, 10 lawmakers announced this week a positive nine, test? Nine members the, this week, you know, and, and this is a including fluid number the Speaker here. of the House. Right. And, and that was a, 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 a kind of a fascinating moment, uh, Jared. Uh, I was in the radio TV gallery studio mm-hmm. waiting for Speaker Pelosi to start her weekly press conference. It was supposed to start at 1045 on Thursday morning. She is historically late. I mean, we're talking not two, three minutes. We're talking 1520. So, you know, we go down there about 1040 and she really doesn't usually show up to about 11 o'clock or five after or later. And so we thought, OK, right. n- nothing big. And then word came out that she had tested positive. Everybody jumped up from their seats and ran out of the room. You know, those old scenes in the movies where you would see all these reporters run for the telephone booths, you know, to to call in the the, 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 (laughs) story. Yes, exactly. Well, we practically did the same thing. And uh, right. with with Speaker Pelosi. Now, what that means is that you have had, uh, you know, the constitutional officer of this branch of government mm-hmm. test positive. You had the former president test positive. Um, you know, so you've had that. This has been going around in Democratic circles. All three members I, of I the Democratic the leadership in the, the House. Cabinet have tested yep, positive. Exactly. Um, Na- Na- Nancy so, Pelosi was not at the gridiron dinner. You know, the big Washington social function the they yeah, tried to do. A lot of these people were at this big dinner yep, uh, with yep. the press and administration officials. And that seems to be maybe where, you know, a, a lot of these cases right. arose. And she but, was with the president, of course, too. Kissed him on uh, the cheek. Twice, tw- two days this week. Yeah. Um, so, listen, it's clear that we are still living with COVID, whether or not it's it's certainly different than it was two years ago. People are vaccinated. There's booster shots. The cases don't seem to be as severe. That being said, uh, the Senate was unable to move forward on $10 billion in new COVID funding for you know additional vaccines, additional research, the therapeutics, the monoclonal antibodies, the testing kits. Uh, why? What, what, what's the holdup here? Because Republicans in the Senate and some Democrats are upset about this, too. Moderate Democrats are upset about Title 42. Now, here's what happened. This money and more money was in this big omnibus bill back in March mm-hmm. to fund the government. You had Democrats. About $16 billion. Yes, this would fund the government mm-hmm. universally through uh, the end of September, the end of the fiscal year. And you had Democrats who went to the speaker and said, you got to take that out because you're moving money around that was promised to our states against her better judgment. Perhaps Nancy Pelosi said, "Okay, let's take it out. Well, that means you have to do a standalone bill. Standalone bill means you need to get 60 votes. Mm -hmm. Then everybody said, "Okay, we have to take out this international aid, which is a non-starter for some in the House. Now, let's talk about Title 42 and the border. The problem there is that Republicans saw political opportunity because they're like, look, this is a bad policy uh, to take away right now. And and they found it ironic, maybe a little bit rich, that the Democrats were always talking about we need COVID aid, yet taking away Title 42, which was a pandemic imposed measure to protect the border. Okay, so those two things don't comport. So they said, we're happy to do that, but let's have a vote on it. Well, that vote on an amendment to go over top of the administration to main with Democrats and you have people like Mark Kelly from Arizona and Kirsten mm-hmm. Cinema and Joe Manchin and, and a few others who probably would have voted for this. Then yeah. the problem is the House. That wouldn't have washed in the House to say nothing of the fact that you had people in the House, Jared, who were upset that they had taken out 
you know, the five billion and they frankly wanted more for international assistance. You know, this disease, you know, this virus does not know borders and every variant that's come down the pike has started overseas, frankly. Mm -hmm. So if you're really looking at this from a public health perspective, that's probably where you want to go. So this is stuck. You have a pandemic, you know, probably at one of its highest levels. Here we are more than two years into this racing through the Capitol. We've never had a rate of this many members getting sick. But that said, as you point out, nobody's in the hospital. Nobody's died. Most of the people here are vaccinated. Uh, It is a little bit different, but it is upending official Washington. Does it change these tests this week, maybe the, the, the trajectory of this bill when lawmakers return here in two weeks? Well, as I always say, and of course I didn't say it, I just appropriated it, uh, Harold <laughs> McMillan, the British prime minister, said the most important factor in politics is what? Events. Events. So we've had an event, COVID outbreak at the Capitol, COVID outbreak at the Gridiron Dinner. Let's see where we are in two weeks. And that might influence their thinking a little bit. We should finish with this because we talk a lot about the uh, skirmishes here between the parties when it comes to legislation. A couple of pieces of legislation, Chad, passed 100 to nothing in the United States Senate. So uh, who said uh, that bipartisanship is dead? Right. I mean, it's remarkable, right, that you get 100 senators to agree on these uh Sanctions. It, one, one takes away favored trade status uh, of Russia and Belarus. The other uh, codifies in law the the uh, oil and energy ban on on Russian uh, energy. Right. That's not but, nothing, right? No, it, it's but but you know what, Jared? Look at how long it took him to get that bill to get the House That's passed true. that bill in the middle of March, four twenty four to eight. The Senate couldn't pass the bill. You know, now, granted, you could just have one or two members who can flag this. And that's certainly what happened here, you know, but they finally got it. And then they had to bounce it back to the House of Representatives, as you say. You know, you know, it's hard to get all 100 senators in the room at the same time, let alone vote on something. And we learned that when Senator Rand Paul, he was the only one who had not voted on the Katanji Brown Jackson nomination. <laughs> right. And held the vote open about 15 minutes. They had the votes. His vote was not determinative. But, you know, people were kind of, you know, tapping their heels there, ready to go, ready to go. And uh, and he basically held things up. He was there quickly on the, the, the other votes, as you talk about on the Russia bills, but a uh, different story on Katanji Brown Jackson. Well, I know people had flights to catch, which is uh, why we are now in this two week recess. So enjoy your uh, your time, Chad. Uh, be well. We'll talk soon and stay healthy. Thank you. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. This past week began with images coming out of Irpin and Bucha of slaughtered Ukrainian civilians, images of dead children without their clothes on, on top of a pile of bodies. The UN Security Council met as outrage demanded some kind of action. The US ambassador to the UN, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, said confronting this threat is the Security Council's charge, but she said it is also every country's charge. No one can be a shield for Russia's aggression. Suspending Russia from the Human Rights Council is something we, collectively have the power to do in the General Assembly. Our votes can make a real difference. 
But Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky also addressed the Security Council through a translator and said that specific council needed to do something more to stop Russia. Either remove Russia as an aggressor and a source of war, or the other option is please show how we can uh, re- reform or change, uh, dissolve yourself and, uh, and, uh, and work for peace. Or if there is no alternative and no option, then the next option would be dissolve yourself altogether. But Russia is a permanent U.N. Security Council member with veto power, and the U.N. is held up there by its own rules. The Security Council can do. It really has its limits. Rich Edson is Fox's senior national correspondent. Russia is a permanent member, and it can veto any action on the Security Council. So what he was asking for really was to set up more of an independent tribunal along the lines of the Nuremberg trials uh, to try Nazi war criminals after the Second World War. So for the UN Security Council to give that or to do its own investigation into war crimes in Ukraine, there really isn't going to be any UN Security Council backing of any measure of that unless there is a fundamental change in the UN Security Council which would be kicking one of its original and permanent members, Russia, off the council. So unfortunately is for there, those looking for that type of tribunal, it's not going to happen. Is, is, what is their process or is there even a process for removing a permanent member from the Security Council? Or would they kind of have to create a, a process? It's something that has never been done before a permanent member. There are rotating members, different states, uh, countries are in and out of the Security Council. Um, on a rotating basis. But, I mean, you're basically rewriting the rules of the United Nations in order to do that. Um, and it would be a remarkable change in how the UN does business. You know, there, and the other thing is, another member of the UN Security Council is China. Um, it's a permanent member of the Security Council as well. And so, you know, China has played, China is, is pretty much allied with Russia, though it's trying to sort of have it both ways here. It's yeah. in this conflict with Ukraine is not going so far as to criticize Russia and is generally being in support of Russia, but hasn't fully gone on to fully support Russia because it still wants to maintain economic ties with the West. And and not to get too off topic here, but China would, as permanent member... I mean, with all the talk of them maybe wanting to go after Taiwan this decade, um, there might be some consequences for them as well. So if the UN Security Council does anything with regards to, to Russia's position, it could very well set a, set a precedent that we might be dealing with shortly with another country. Right. And we have had divisions on the UN Security Council like this with China and Russia lining up as authoritarian regimes and standing in the way of votes that Western democracies want, uh, and vice versa, China and Russia calling to condemn the United States over something in the UN Security Council, uh, and the US, Great Britain, France, all vote to protect the United States. So there there has been this rift on the Security Council uh, since its inception after the Second World War. The member countries, I guess a few of the permanent council members spoke um, this past week, and then President Zelensky of Ukraine spoke, and, and then we heard from additional countries after that, um, many of them just expressing absolute disgust with Russia. I mean, some of the harshest language uh, in that meeting. Did any country representative toe a different line, even one that attempted to be more empathetic 
to Russia other than like the Russian and Chinese representatives? You largely have some countries, some in the Middle East, some in Africa, South America that are staying out of this. Um, And while they have condemned Russia for what it has done, they are not going as far as to levy sanctions against Russia or cut economic, cut Russia out of economic deals. You know, what you're largely seeing as far as consequences for Russia are really being led by the European Union, the United States, um, to some degree, Japan, and that really Western democratic bloc. The rest of the world, there are other, there are exceptions, but for the most part, the rest of the world is, has sort of said, hey, uh, you know, they many countries, 90 plus countries voted to remove Russia at the United Nations off the Human Rights Council. Um, that's something that's has been a show of force, but going as far as the West and the United States, there's a big misconception that it's the whole world that is sort of isolating Russia. It really is the U.S., the European Union, and the strong U.S. and American allies and European allies that are doing this. Um, the rest of the world is is sort of paying lip service to it, but you know, trade with Russia kind of continues in that regard. You know, and of note, there are those 58 countries that that abstained, right? It, it, what do we make of of those countries and what line they're trying to walk? Is it is it more of the same? Like, oh, we've got these trade relationships or we have some form of a relationship. So we're, we're just going to kind of take a, a back seat here. Yeah, exactly. They're not going to go as far as to actually condemn Russia. They can't be on the record in support of, of what we've seen in Ukraine, which is the deliberate targeting of civilians and these, you know, these people being found with their hands bound behind them and executed. And, you know, they're not going to go on the record in support of that, but they're also not going to be the vanguard or even join with the West in condemning Russia for this behavior. Because, you know, I think there is probably a belief among a number of these countries, if they have certain agreements with Russia or they, you know, Russia is a major weapons supplier, if they happen to be a, a weapons supplier to their country, that perhaps the West is going to lose interest in this sanctions campaign that we are looking at a eventually a stalemate in Ukraine and that the European Union and the United States, especially the EU, uh, that European Union voters are going to grow tired of paying higher energy costs. And that eventually we'll just have a static condition where there will be some sanctions, but the, the West will lose interest. And they don't want to be left having angered Russia on the other end of that. Interesting. Um, as we've discussed, Russia has... Um has that permanent seat on the Security Council. It's used its veto power, apparently, more than any other permanent member country. It reads like the Security Council, as we've discussed, really they have their hands tied by their own rules here, but they could rely on the General Assembly to get some things done if this war drags on, as our own military leaders have indicated it might. What might we see in the way of alternative actions to deal with Russia, even as it maintains its seat on the Security Council? Yeah, you saw that with the um, the vote against Russia on the Human Rights Council. Um, it will be perhaps uh, a, a statement. You've seen other votes at the at the broader United Nations on statements condemning Russia for its invasion of Ukraine and demanding that Russia cease the action and retreat back to its borders. Um, mostly, what you'll see from the United Nations are these sort of statements calling out Russia. Uh, and saying that the world stands against you for what you've done. 
you'll probably see a little bit more action, you know, when when Vladimir Putin invaded Crimea and eastern Ukraine in 2014, the West kicked Russia out of the G8. You know, it expanded the G7, included Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union, and then went back and kicked them out again. They've been out ever since. Um, there are calls to kick Russia out of the G20 and other types of international organizations and try to really isolate Russia. You know, I think you'll probably see more of that. Maybe a continued campaign from the United Nations on different resolutions calling on Russia to stop. Um, you'll see references to the International Criminal Court. The problem with the International Criminal Court and the United States is that the United States is not a member of the International Criminal Court. The ICC has tried to try Americans over uh, what they're accusing Americans of war crimes in Afghanistan. So the U.S. has its own tortured history with the, the ICC. And so, you know, while you're hearing people say, hey, let's refer Russia to the International Criminal Court for what it's doing in Ukraine, the world is kind of looking at the United States saying, well, you guys really don't have any standing because you're not a member. But there are other countries that are members of the ICC that are calling for this type of thing. So you have these different international groups um, that you'll probably see more action on outside of the United Nations. Rich, can we talk for a second about who's on the Human Rights Council? I mean, th this is what it took to get kicked off, right? Is this is this war or at least not kicked off, but suspended, I should say. Um, there have been some questionable countries on the, the Human Rights uh -huh. Council, no? Yeah, that's an understatement. I mean, you've got you, the way that it works at the United Nations is, look, this is a, a an organization that represents a couple hundred countries around the world. And um, a lot of those countries are run by despots, dictators, people who do horrible things to their old people and others. Um, Syria has been a member of the Human Rights Council. Um, you know, you've got other countries. Russia has been a member of the Human Rights. Iran has been a member of the Human Rights Council. And the way that it works is that the Human Rights Council uh, through backdealing international diplomats in New York at UN headquarters, um, will get blocks of countries together and say, hey, put me on the Human Rights Council and I will back your country for this type of resolution or ah. you're looking for this type of... And so this horse trading goes on behind the scenes every time the Human Rights Council vote comes up. And so you've got this vote of different countries. It, you know, it, it revolves. There's different countries all the time on the Human Rights Council. And every time they make it up, you know, it's it's like something journalists do. Who's going to be on the Human Rights Council? <laughs> and inevitably, there are countries that treat their own their own citizens, you know, that do have no human rights standards. Right. Rich, finally, in leading up to the war, um, you know, we saw you uh, on the diplomacy side of things, right? You, you cover the State Department. Uh, I think you've, you've been to Brussels, um, it, you know, as of late. Um, we kept hearing diplomacy, 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 right, in the run-up to this. I kind of want your your reflections um, as you look back on January and February as Russian troops were, you know, gathering. Were you thinking, like, as a reporter, okay, there's this serious diplomatic effort underway here. Let's see if this works. And then did things sort of flip when U.S. officials started saying, okay, an invasion is imminent? They, they started using that word imminent. Like, what were you thinking at the time based on on what you were hearing what are your own reflections you know i think the one question there are really two questions going into this it, before the invasion and, and the first was u.s intelligence seems so convinced and you remember president Zelensky was saying that he thought the u.s was fear-mongering at the time 
And he yeah. was trying to calm people at home. And, you know, there was a real question of would Russia actually do this? And we've seen this movie before in 2008. Vladimir Putin invades Georgia. In 2014, he invades eastern Ukraine and Crimea. And so there was a real question. Is this something that's actually going to happen? U.S. intelligence has been wrong before. Um, right. It's kind of silly to think they won't be wrong again. And, you know, and it really was the U.S. that had such certainty that this was going to happen. So the first question is, is this going to happen? And it did. Um, you know, the second has been how strong are the Europeans willing to go here? And you have had especially German pushback on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which is a massive natural gas project that just concluded, hasn't been certified yet, between Russia and Germany to supply all this Russian natural gas. So the U.S. had been pushing Germany to stop the project, stop the project. And it was and, and then finally the Biden administration came in and said, look, the thing is 98 percent done. There's not much we can do. We want to preserve good relations with Germans. And so, you know, they didn't say the U.S. didn't sanction that project. How are the Europeans going to hold? Are they finally going to stand up, really stand up to the Russians here? And it's been surprising. The Europeans have held together. The Germans stop certifications of Nord Stream 2. The Germans have now, the European Union has stopped uh, oil and coal imports. They still have gas imports. They're trying to wean themselves off Russian gas. Um, they have all of these sanctions against the Russians. And so the questions going forward, how much more in sanctions and weapons can we expect the West and the United States to be on the same page about? Remember, there was that dust up over whether uh, yeah. Poland would supply MiG fighters and all of that. Um, and then will this, will this, transatlantic partnership on this, will this hang together? Or will voters in Western Europe finally say, I'm tired of paying more for gas. I don't care what Vladimir Putin does, or I care less about what Vladimir Putin does now uh, than I did a few months ago. And so those are the real big diplomatic questions going forward. That's fascinating. Yeah, the, the fatigue on, on all sides. Rich Edson, thank you yeah. so much for your time. Thank you. Tomorrow on the Fox News Rundown from Washington, the Biden administration will lift Title 42 next month, a public health order that has restricted migration in the U.S. for more than two years. We'll talk about what impact ending that policy could have on the border and what steps Congress can take to reform the immigration system. And Jessica Rosenthal chats with Congressman Mo Brooks, the Republican running for Senate in Alabama. Once endorsed by former President Trump, he is no longer the former president's preferred candidate. Until then, I'm Jared Halpern. Thanks for listening to the Fox News Rundown from Washington. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.